welcome to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk. Here's your host, Jason Davis. Good morning, everybody. Happy Tuesday. Welcome into Soccer Morning on a St. Patrick's Day 2015. I don't, I'm not wearing green. I forgot. And I don't have a list of Irish uh, footballers to discuss. And um, yeah, basically we nothing Irish. We can talk about John O'Brien for a while, if you guys like. Do that. We can talk about Irish uh, players, Irish players of Irish extraction who play for the U.S. men's national team. Just call me, call me up and, <laughs> and drop in those names. I like no no preparations for St. Patrick's Day whatsoever, and I am uh, you know a reasonably amount of Irish, the same amount as most people of my complexion. You probably guessed that. But it is uh, it's also a, a, a good day for a big show here at Soccer Morning. A couple of very good guests. We're going to talk uh, European football today. Uh, the two nations that share that uh, English Channel thing, England with Christian Hanej, starting off in about uh, 10 minutes, and we'll talk Premier League with him, uh, starting with the sacking of Gus Poyet and the hiring of Dick Avocat by Sunderland. And then we'll jump over that channel and talk France and French football with our friend Jonathan Johnson. Interesting things happening there uh, in the fact that PSG is uh, not in line for a title at the moment. Lyon is in first. Marseille is not getting the job done. Zlatan is attacking referees in tunnels and calling France a piece of S country. Well, he didn't say piece of. He just said an S country. I'm not going to curse. Then he uh, then he had to apologize to the referee. And there are also, and I don't know if we'll pull politics into this or not with Mr. Johnson. But then he, uh, then he was told by a, uh, a far right politician that he should leave the country. So that's fun. That's fun when, uh, the nationalists are telling you to get out of the country because you insulted France. So we'll talk about that with Jonathan Johnson. It should be a good discussion. As I mentioned, let's do the news here on a Tuesday. Again, you have the Premier League this weekend. We'll get into all of that with Christian, but yesterday's game, Liverpool. Beating Swansea one nothing, Jordan Jordan Henderson with the goal. Winners, uh, Liverpool winning that game, big a uh, big three points for them in the standings, of course. Trying to chase down, trying to maintain a, an opportunity to grab a Champions League spot, trying to chase down. Um, Manchester City and Arsenal ahead of them, trying to keep Manchester United within uh within reaching distance. Two points back, United in fifth place now. Liverpool is. And they didn't play very well for the first 45 minutes of that game. In fact, they played disastrously. Swansea deserved to be ahead, couldn't finish their chances. But this is what good teams do. You find a way to win despite the fact you weren't playing very well. Champions League matches today. We talk a little bit about this uh, with Jonathan as well in terms of Monaco and Arsenal. Monaco holding that 3-1 lead that they grabbed at the Emirates. A significant challenge for Arsenal and Arsene Wenger, who now have to go to France and try to overturn a two-goal deficit. We'll make sure, well, more than that, as a matter of fact, because of the away goals. And Atletico Madrid hosting Bayer Leverkusen down a goal in that tie. I would put good money on Atletico Madrid to, to get a goal. If they can keep Leverkusen off the board. That should be a fascinating tie as well. Second leg in the Champions League. Mentioned that Dick Advocat joining Sunderland as their manager for the rest of the year. Gus Poyet just did not get the job done. And after that thrashing they took 
against Aston Villa. Aston Villa, a team that can't, that couldn't score goals. A team that, that di- didn't uh, seem to have forgotten what a goal was. And to give up that many to, to Aston Villa, clearly the breaking point for Ellis Short and Sunderland as they uh, sent Poyet packing. And Avocat comes in. We'll see if he can keep them up. Can he do what Poyet did last year? And this is the revolving door that happens at your bottom half relegation-threatened Premier League clubs. You go through a swoon period. You hire a new manager. You hope he can get you through. MLS expansion in the news yesterday, mostly because MLS issued a an official statement on their discussions with Minnesota United Football Club to bring a team to Minneapolis-St. Paul. Quote, we are in advanced discussions with Bill McGuire and his partners in Minnesota to bring a Major League Soccer expansion club to the Twin Cities and are particularly excited about their plans for a new soccer-specific stadium that will serve as the club's home. We remain on track to announce the next MLS expansion market in the next 30 to 45 days, though no specific date for an announcement has been set. Now, this is bad news for Sacramento Republic FC on the face of it. And Minnesota is uh, Minnesota United is in the process of identifying a plot of land to build a stadium. I've heard some whisperings about uh, a, a, a spot near Target Field, which is where the Minnesota Twins play. But the saving grace for Sacramento is this next line. Over the course of 2015, we plan to evaluate potential expansion beyond 24 clubs. Now, and there's a little bit of confusion about this. Some people out there going, oh, MLS said they were only going to 24. What's this all about? MLS never said they were only going to 24. What Don Garber said, and this is the the genius, if you want to phrase it that way, of Don Garber, leaving himself an out, what Don Garber said is we're going to pause. We're going to pause there. And he said it about 20. Didn't he say they were going to pause at 20 as well? I mean, essentially, that's what he said. I'm paraphrasing. But at no point did I ever get the sense that MLS was going to be content with 24 teams and that was going to be the end of it. Now, again, you move past 24 teams, you open up some issues in terms of scheduling, conference realignment, stuff I don't want to get into. But the good news for Sacramento, again, a a, a city and a team in the USL and an ownership group that has checked all of the boxes, a a fan group that has checked all of the boxes you would expect to lead to an MLS franchise, the saving grace is that they might expand past 24. But being uh, being put in behind Minnesota United can't be thrilling. Madison Soccer, with an excellent point, pretty sure MLS will never stop accepting, accepting $100 million checks. It's <laughs> a very good point. It's a very good point. All right. With that, let's take a break. Let's get ready to take a break here. We'll talk to you. Oh, I want to remind you. Apologies um, for for this. wanted to remind you to make sure you go check out Dishworld. Dishworld.com, streaming service that includes BN Sport, uh, One World Sport. I think Willow, the cricket channel, is on there, as a matter of fact. If, you're ever, if you've ever been interested in some cricket or if you happen to be an expat that listens to this show, uh, that's uh, that's there as well, plus a lot of international programming. The reason I tell you about this, El Clasico coming up this weekend if you want to have access to El Clasico, this is an easy way to do it. Uh, check out dishworld.com. They're supporting the show. We very much appreciate uh, them backing us. So we would love it if you checked them out. On the other side of this break, Christian Hanaj will join us. We're going to talk Premier League. We'll talk us Puyat leaving. 
Degavacat in Chelsea, Manchester City, Manchester United, Liverpool. Don't go anywhere. Be right back. Every soccer fan in the world knows that the biggest match of the year is El Clasico between Barcelona and Real Madrid. It's your chance to witness Cristiano Ronaldo, Lino Messi, and more of the greatest players in the world. The best way to watch is with Dish World and their exclusive broadcast from BN Sports. Dish World is the number one live international TV service in the U.S. It's a safe and legal streaming service that delivers your favorite sports and more to your TV, tablet, phone, and computer. For just $10 a month, you can watch El Clasico, plus La Liga, Serie A, and Copa America, as well as the New York Cosmos, Chelsea TV, Arsenal TV, and others with One World Sports and more top networks offered by Dish World. There's no commitment, no annual contract, and no satellite dish needed. Don't miss El Clasico on Sunday, March 22nd. Sign up today at www.dishworld.com. Hey there, it's Jason Davis, and if you're like me and love playing fantasy soccer games, I want to let you know about a fantastic new game called Draft11.com. This is not your usual fantasy soccer game. Draft11.com is different for two major reasons. First, it's a daily fantasy soccer game, and second, it gives you an opportunity to win cash. So instead of playing an entire season and competing against, say, the 3 million people who play fantasy Premier League and winning nada... You can play Draft11.com over one match day against up to 10 people. And if your team wins, you win. Cash, not points. So go ahead and support our new sponsor that's helping bring Soccer Morning to you every single day. Head over to Draft11.com, sign up for a free account, and take a shot at trying to win some cold, hard cash. Thanks. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk with Jason Davis. Here we go back on Soccer Morning. On the phone with me now, Christian Henej covers English football, American football, all kinds. Well, not American football, American soccer. All kinds of things for various outlets. Follow him on Twitter, K-H-E-N-E-A-G-E. Did that off the top of my head. Christian, how are you? I'm very good, thank you, mate. How are you? I am I am well. Let's, uh, let's talk about Sunderland. Obviously, you know... Uh, the Black Cats have had um, a rough go of it this year. Gus Boyette came in last year as a replacement for Paulo De Canio, uh, did a, a reasonable job keeping them in the Premier League. This season, the uh, the likelihood that they would be in a relegation scrap were, was always very high. And here he is after losing to Aston Villa, a team that I mentioned off the top of the show, seemed to have forgotten how to score um, and he's been fired, and, and the replacement is Dick Avocat. Let's start with, with Poyet and his tenure at Sunderland. Was it just beyond him at this point? What were the issues you saw? I, I think it was beyond him. I think the issues I saw were that perhaps he wasn't willing to accept that the players at his disposal couldn't play the way that he wanted to. He wanted veteran defenders to try and learn a new style of play, a more technical style of play, which I think they were never going to really be able to do. I also think he was quite hamstrung in terms of the players that he had in key positions. You look at the central midfield, the fact that Sebastian Larsson, who's been predominantly a right winger for the majority of his career, 
has been forced into that central midfield uh, position has significantly hampered Sutherland on numerous occasions because he's not suited to that position. He's he's energy, he's he's endeavour, but he's not really anything creative or or dynamic. And as, as we discussed, you know, numerous times with Josie Alfield, that was a, a failing in terms of service that he wasn't getting service. And I think none of the strikers have had consistent service. I think even right up until the, the very end of his time with the club, it didn't seem he knew what the best positions were for the majority of his players, guys like Stephen Fletcher and Connor Wickham, strikers playing out in wide positions. That was, was never really going to work. And then you have the, the situation with Lee Congress and the sporting director. I, I know firsthand they, they had a very fractured relationship towards the end. And the players that Poirier signed ultimately didn't pan out. Guys like Liam Bridcut and Will Buckley, who he, he brought from his former club Brighton, they weren't ready for the Premier League. Then the ones that perhaps were of Premier League quality, guys like Sebastian Guartes. Poi actually vetoed a deal for, for Toby Alderweireld in the summer, the one that Congerton had set up in favour of Sebastian Coates. Now, Coates simply hasn't had a significant impact for, for Sunderland this season. Neither has, has Ricky Alvarez, another player that Poi wanted. And so it's at that point you start to say, well, maybe this isn't the best situation because I think the death knell for me for, for Poi was when he blamed the fans. And, Credit to the Sunderland fans, they responded very vocally and very bluntly by singing, this point it's always our fault during their, their cup tie <laughs> breakfast. And it's true, because you can't blame the Sunderland fans at this point. They, they turn up consistently and they're loyal. And they just want a side, I think, that, that performs. They're not after uh, the most aesthetically pleasing football. They just want a committed side and for people to take responsibility for their shortcomings. Because I think in, in the past, Sunderland fans have been honest enough to say that maybe they haven't been as, as positive as they could have been. Before I uh, before I come on to Avocat here and talk about his deal to that, that extends to the end of the season and his opportunity to try to keep them up and again Sunderland's in a scrap but they're in seventeenth at the moment so they are just one spot above the relegation zone. Um, it, was there something uh, this just popped into my head? I mean, obviously losing to Aston Villa the man in the manner that they did was a breaking point. But when you look at what Burnley did uh, against City this weekend. And obviously Burnley is, a, is another team down there that Sunderland is going to have to, to beat out to avoid relegation. Do you think in combination have anything to do with Poya being, being fired? I think it does to a degree. It's very difficult. You have to try and not be too reactionary when you, when you sack a manager. The problem that they had is, as you rightly said, Burnley picked up an impressive bit. Aston Villa themselves looked very impressive in that first half. They really did tear a very poor Sunderland side to shreds. And I think that was the, the push moment for Ellis Short. I think in, in fairness, Short's another one who has to be held accountable at this moment for actually the decisions he's made haven't been conducive to Sunderland Football Club succeeding. He brought in Martin O'Neill and gave him a, a good portion of money to spend that I think ultimately uh, O'Neill wasted. Then in turn, he, he brought in uh, Di Canio, who then had to operate on quite a parsimonious budget because of the spending of O'Neill. And essentially, it's the timelines overlapping and the revolutions running into each other and essentially pulling Sunderland from one side to the other so they're too far on the opposite end of those poles. I think on paper, Azrakar certainly seems a, a good acquisition. The concern you have is, is that, again, he's working with the same players, that mixed mash of, of ideologies and yeah. styles. Uh, so Avocat comes in, and, and before uh, I'll ask you about the structure of Sunderland. You mentioned, obviously, Poya, you know, signed some players and, and, and brought in some players who did not pan out. This is typically... What happens before a manager is fired? He's not only responsible for the results, he's responsible for um, the squad and, and the players that he advocates for. Is there a is there a is the structure at Sunderland such that the manager has 
the ability to sign who he likes? Or is, is Sunderland one of those clubs that's more moving toward, towards the separation of powers on that front? It, it's moving to the latter. You're, you're completely correct. It's going to be more of a head coach model. It's someone who's going to have to defer to, to Lee Congerton, uh the sporting director of the signings. And, and to a degree, I think Congerton's had a, a fairly good success. I think Patrick Van Aarhol has been a very astute signing for the, for the club. He's the right kind of player, I think. A club like someone needs to be bringing in someone who's, who's in theory got their best years of football ahead of them. Uh, someone who's, I would imagine, fairly deep in relation to the competitive uh, salary structures in, in the Premier League. And that's where Congleton, I think, will shine, is being able to procure those players. Certainly, in the past, there's, there's been issues. You look at Roberto Defanti, the man who came in before Lee Congleton. He didn't seem to get on too well with the Canyon. There were claims from both men, in fact, that their signings were, were respectively vetoed. And then it becomes a bit like that old Don Henley song, there's three sides to every story, yours, mine, and the cold hard truth. Someone's telling uh, you know, a story that's perhaps not entirely correct. I know for a fact that Decanio was very big on Tom Huddleston, and he feels that that really hampered him. And speaking on, on Fox Italia at the weekend, he said that, again, it does fall on Ellis Short, and that that's part of the problem. I think what Short has to do now is delegate. Um, I wrote a piece for All Sports News, that said that Short needs to step back and, and just give Congress in those reins, which in fairness to, to Alex Short, he seems to be doing now. He seems to be giving full power and control of Sunderland's acquisitions and, and the style to Lee Congerton and then allowing things on the pitch to, to be dictated by that head coach, which is something that Poirier did try to cling to at points and saying, I don't sign the players. I just pick the team mm. and tell them how to play. Mm. So Advocat has now responsibility now. He comes in, obviously, an incredible... Uh, a CV for the uh, a resume for the American CV for the Brits. Uh, he's been everywhere. He's been in international football. He's obviously coached in his native Netherlands. He's coached in uh, Russia. Um, let's see. I'm looking here. Uh, Russia, South. He's coached South Korea's national team uh, up in Scotland for a brief period of time back in the turn of the century. So, what is what do you expect Avocat to do with a very limited run here? Again, his, his contract runs through the end of the year. His task is to keep Sunderland up. He has what nine matches to? How many matches left to do it? Uh, he has nine, yeah, nine, nine games. And so that's that's the difference. As you touched on yourself, he's very experienced. It's quicker to name the clubs he hasn't managed than the ones <laughs> he has. And I think that if you look at his time at Zenit St. Petersburg, that's probably a pinnacle for him in terms of not just the style of football, but what he did for that club and winning them the Europa League and also some domestic success. The reason he left there was because they sold his best players. So clearly he's quite a strong character, as I think we often associate with the majority of Dutch managers and coaches, that they do have this strong mentality. He'll give them a high-pressure style, I think, but he'll also be very conservative. But the interesting point for me moving forward is that in around three weeks, they face Newcastle. And historically, at least in, in recent times, that's been a real important game for them. Last season, it was what kept them up. It was actually what sparked the momentum for, for Poy in terms of beating Newcastle, breaking actual records in terms of winning on time side, doing the double over them. And I think that could be another important waypoint for someone again this season. They're lucky in the sense that Newcastle are in a similar situation in terms of their tumbling towards the end of the season. There's really no excitement around that football club at the minute. They were incredibly poor at the weekend and they'll be missing Fabrizio Colaccini in the centre of defence. So they now have to try and work out who's going to inhabit that space. And if you have that kind of makeshift defence, similar to the one that actually faced them when, when they beat Newcastle 2-1 with a, a Barini winner, it's, it's going to cause problems because Newcastle 
in truth, aren't the best team defensively when they've got a full complement of defenders who are natural in that position. So when you're trying to forge a makeshift back four, I think problems are going to ensue as a consequence. The the interesting thing, I think, for Advocat will be what team he picks. I'll be very eager to see how that first squad lines up, what positions he picks. Does he go for four four two? Because in truth, that seems to be a successful formation for, for someone who's like they've got strength in attack they've got Jermaine Defoe they've got Stephen Fletcher Connor Wickham to a slightly lesser extent and they've also got a bit of a dearth of talent in central midfield I think Lee Casamol is a stand-up but Jack Rodwell hasn't performed and so it's how you maximise those strengths in terms of the, the team and the way they play because I think as some Sunderland fans will tell you at, at times it doesn't seem like they've had any strength this season. Mm. Let's uh, let's move up the table we'll talk a, a little bit more about the, the rest of the league as a whole uh, Christian I mentioned Manchester City losing to Burnley. That's obviously a huge help to Burnley's attempt to, to avoid relegation this year. But it's also a big blow to Manchester City's title hopes. Now, Chelsea didn't consolidate their their opportunity uh, in that match against Southampton. But they, they are six points out in front. And, and for whatever Jose Mourinho wants to say about Arsenal or whoever, I just can't see any any other likelihood than that Chelsea wins this title. I'm inclined to agree. I think if you look at Mourinho historically, he's a, he's very good at shutting games out. He said himself, 1-0 is the easiest result to record in football. I think it's somewhat funny that he says that because I don't think he's been able to do as much as, as perhaps during his first spell. But he will do whatever it takes. He's Machiavellian in that sense. He'll, he'll do whatever it takes. He'll rumble opponents. He'll say things like he did about Arsenal in terms of the, the momentum and the, the comment of, of which momentum. Is it West Ham 3-0 or Monaco 3-1? Right. He'll play the game. And I, th- I think that's why he has succeeded. The concern for, for Manchester City now is, is where do you move forward? Because it seems as if they've almost lurched between one thing to another. They wanted a, a tactical manager in, Man- in Roberto Mancini and they got him and he wasn't the right fit. They realised that the squad dynamic needed to be uh, catered for and looked after. So they got someone in, in Manuel Pellegrini, who's, who's nicknamed the engineer, who Diego Forlan said is fantastic at squad management. When he would tell you you're not in the team, you weren't disappointed because you knew he was being honest and upfront with you and never uh, you know, criticising you. He was being constructive in everything he said. And it hasn't worked for him either. Tactically, I think Pellegrini's been found wanting at times. To go 4-4-2 against Barcelona, that to me seems criminal because the strength for me is in their forward line but also in that midfield and, and to limit yourself to two in such a key area of the pitch is, as Radiola often says the, the midfield is where the game is won mm. to limit yourself like that is is crazy to me for, for want of a, a better word and and I think that's why ultimately you'll find that, that the closest Man City are going to get to the Premier League title this, this season is picking up a runner's medal. Well, how about how about how about Arsenal? Uh, yes, momentum in in the league three three nil over West Ham, but uh, forced to overcome a deficit that they uh, that they dug themselves themselves at the at the Emirates in the Champions against against Monaco. Um, there's you know they're in third, they're seven points back. They're probably not going to win a title, but what's the ceiling for them right now? Well, if you believe Arsene Wenger, they will win a title. They'll finish fourth. Um, <laughs> that, that is a cup in itself, yeah. apparently. And look, I think Arsenal are in a difficult predicament themselves because, again, certainly they'll produce play like they did against West Ham, which I thought was beautiful. I thought it was fluent. It was almost a heart back to the invincible era of Arsene Wenger and Arsenal. The problem is is that that consistency is missing. For me, yes, Giroud scored a, a beautiful goal at the weekend, but I'd be more pressed if I was choosing to have him score against Monaco, mm-hmm. one of the number of chances that he missed that evening, because to me, 
that's the more important goal. They, they're going to, to qualify for, for the top four, I believe, fairly comfortably. But they have struggled in the Champions League in that round of 16. They're against the Monaco side that lost two of their star players in the summer. And Leonardo Jardim has done fantastic to build anything off the back of that. Never mind the fact that you can say, oh, well, they're defensive and they don't play a very expansive style. That's really not the issue. They're winning games. And they're, you know, they're recording the best defensive record in the Champions League group stages this season. They only scored, I think it was four goals at home in the group stages. So it tells you the story of them and you know what to expect. And yet Arsenal weren't able to, to beat them and break them down at home. They, they fell into one of the, what seemed the most obvious trap of the, the group, the, the knockout rounds, rather. And so for me, that's where the, the concern lies with Arsenal, is that, yes, you will achieve the top four, but I don't think that's enough. I think if you're spending the kind of sums you do on the likes of Alexis Sanchez and, and Mesut Ozil, you have to aspire to more. You have to be now in the process of challenging Manchester City and Chelsea and saying, you know what, we can win this title. But mm. the truth is, I just don't think they can. I think they're far too back off, uh, uh, too far off the, the top. And that's where I think the summer is an interesting uh, point for them in terms of do they go out and spend? They need a central midfielder. They need someone, I would say, of the ilk of Patrick Vieira to give them a physicality and a, and a presence in the central of midfield. I thought it was very telling that, that Jeffrey Kondogbia really dominated that first leg because, for me, that's exactly the kind of player that they, they need in that central midfield position. And Christian, they were, they were finishing fourth when they weren't spending. So when you're not getting an additional return <laughs> on your investment, what's the point? Why, why go out and spend that money that you've gotten through these big uh, kit deals and the like if you're not going to actually climb up the ladder a bit and again as you said challenge for the title well I think you have to believe that you will climb up that ladder you have to believe that actually you can forge it because we've seen in I would say in this decade that Arsenal have been on top of the Premier League for, for good portions of the season uh, the problem is, is that they've lacked that consistency I think some of that is perhaps a depth issue of course other, that, other elements of that I think are a mentality issue that's where they need to be signing players that are genuinely champions, championship and Champions League quality. I think some of the players that that uh, Arsene Wenger has, has procured from Central Europe just aren't of the same ilk as the likes of Pires and, and Will Todd and Henri. These were recognised starters for the French national team, consistent starters. You look at Olivier Giroud by comparison, he's not a consistent starter for the French national team. That's Karim Benzema. And so I think, yes, he's buying from the same markets, but I feel as if he's buying lesser players and having to take a little bit more of a risk, partly because he doesn't want to spend the exorbitant fees or what he perceives as exorbitant fees on the likes of Benzema. Mm-hmm. For me, sometimes you have to pay that premium to get that quality player. It's a sad indictment of, of football in terms of where it's at now, but you have to do it. You, you can't dominate the market forever, as, as Wenger did what? during that period of, of time. So I, don't, I think if you're, if you're Arsenal and you're not willing to play the game, then don't complain about it. Either do or don't. Don't don't go about this in in well. You know we've been passed by the the the, the fees are are as you said exorbitant. Obviously, Kareem Benzema is going to cost you a lot of money. Whereas 15 years ago, you can get a Thierry Henry for a, a much lesser amount. I, I don't I don't know what Arsenal is going to be in, in the future, uh, Christian. I find them fascinating for that reason. Exactly. They're a curious project to watch. I think, you know, we use Benzema as an example. To me, I look at Nicolas Anelka, who he signed from uh, PSG many years ago. I think it was half a million pounds he cost. That's the kind of signing he would have made in the case of Benzema. The problem is that the situation, the landscape has changed. And unfortunately, I don't think Arsene Wenger has changed with it. And that's the, the problem we're now facing is that he is refusing to evolve and budge from 
his recognized ideology. And, and to a degree, I respect that because it achieved him success. And sometimes you have to be stubborn with your mentality for it to, to truly bear fruit. Mm. I think Arsenal fans, though, the fact that they are starting to tire of things, are wanting to see more from the club, suggests that maybe they're not as, as invested in the mentality and the way that he approaches things now, that they themselves are, are seeing those around them, even Tottenham creeping up really quite close to them now and saying, actually, we feel like we've stalled it, and it maybe even a degree regressed slightly, which is is not acceptable given that we're constantly seeing the ever-expanding TV race, the, the money flowing into football, and we're just not seeing it represented in, in our achievements. Christian Hanez talking English uh, football, the Premier League, obviously things uh, shaking out with nine matches to go for most of these uh, clubs. Talking a little Sunderland and Gus Boyette's firing, as well as Dick Advocat joining for the rest of this season. Christian, i got to move on, but I appreciate your time as always. Thank you very much. We'll have you back soon. It's always a pleasure, mate. Look forward to speaking to you soon. There you go, Christian Hanez. Go follow the man on Twitter. He knows what he's talking about. When we come back, Jonathan Johnson, another man who knows what he's talking about, will talk French football with us. Zlatan got himself in trouble. Don't go anywhere. Be right back. Every soccer fan in the world knows that the biggest match of the year is El Clasico between Barcelona and Real Madrid. It's your chance to witness Cristiano Ronaldo, Lido Messi, and more of the greatest players in the world. The best way to watch is with Dish World and their exclusive broadcast from BN Sports. Dish World is the number one live international TV service in the U.S. It's a safe and legal streaming service that delivers your favorite sports and more to your TV, tablet, phone, and computer. For just $10 a month, you can watch El Clasico, plus La Liga, Serie A, and Copa America, as well as the New York Cosmos, Chelsea TV, Arsenal TV, and others with One World Sports and more top networks offered by Dish World. There's no commitment, no annual contract, and no satellite dish needed. Don't miss El Clasico on Sunday, March 22nd. Sign up today at www.dishworld.com. Hey there, it's Jason Davis, and if you're like me and love playing fantasy soccer games, I want to let you know about a fantastic new game called Draft11.com. This is not your usual fantasy soccer game. Draft11.com is different for two major reasons. First, it's a daily fantasy soccer game, and second, it gives you an opportunity to win cash. So instead of playing an entire season and competing against, say, the 3 million people who play fantasy Premier League and winning nada... You can play Draft11.com over one match day against up to 10 people. And if your team wins, you win. Cash, not points. So go ahead and support our new sponsor that's helping bring Soccer Morning to you every single day. Head over to Draft11.com, sign up for a free account, and take a shot at trying to win some cold, hard cash. Thanks. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk with Jason Davis. Here we go, back on Soccer Morning, talking a little French football with our friend Jonathan Johnson. It's been, it's been a little while since we had Jonathan on the show. Welcome back to the show, Jonathan. How are you? Hey there, Jason. I'm very well, thanks. And yourself? I am well. Um, let's uh, let's talk about what's happening in Ligue 1 and certainly in the Champions League 
for a couple a couple of French sides doing very well for themselves. We'll see what happens today, of course. Uh, but I'm going to start with PSG, and I'm going to start with Zlatan Ibrahimovic. And I, I promised you before this discussion that I wouldn't make it just about this incident. But there are so many layers here that I love, and uh, it's Latan and it's his attitude, and it's uh, it's referee abuse, and it's uh, the the political response. But first, just outline for people what exactly happened uh, with Latan after this loss to Bordeaux, and and why it's a controversy. Okay, well, basically, what happened was uh, there was a pass back made uh, with about five minutes to go of the game at the weekend. PSG lost away at Bordeaux three two. It was two two at the time. Uh, the ball was played back from the, the captain, a central defender, Ludovic Sané, to the goalkeeper, Cedric Caresso. Uh, Caresso picked the ball up, and Ibrahimovic was incensed at that moment that the, uh, the play wasn't wasn't brought back for uh, uh, for for an indirect free kick for PSG for for the pass back. The game continued, and and Bordeaux went on to win three two. Then afterwards, Ibrahimovic was caught on camera uh, lambasting the, uh, the 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 referee's assistant. Went on a on a rant and. You know, Ibrahimovic is English, is, is good, uh, is, is good when he wants to be, but in this moment when he was, uh, apoplectic with rage, uh, it wasn't particularly great, uh, and, and Ibrahimovic wanted to express just how angry he was, uh, at the decision. However, it came out in, uh, uh, in, in a very regrettable manner, uh, certainly from his point of view. Uh, and it has now sparked controversy in France because, uh, he, he, he used an expletive word next to uh, <laughs> ne- next to country, and the, yes. and the country in question would have been France. And, right. and many people have taken this as Ibrahimovic uh, stating that he's he, he's not happy in France and he's not happy with the way uh, things happen in France. Now it's it, it's blown up into a, in, into a, a, a massive controversy, and as you mentioned, it's not just taken on the, the sporting. Aspects, but there's plenty of other issues at play now as well, with politicians weighing in uh, and the minister of sport as well. Now, I, I know he has apologized, uh, at least to, I don't know to, directly to the individual referee that he was lambasting or to the referees as a whole. But I know he's a, issued an apology that that's that's been accepted. Is there any chance that they can move quickly past this? I mean, Zlatan is is important to PSG. Clearly, they they they're going to need him if they're going to even have a chance to win another title in the league they're going to need him after he comes back in the champions league from that red card provide i I, and i'll ask you about that in a second Uh, is there any chance that this will blow over or is this going to become much more than it really needs to be Uh, i don't think this will blow over i think he will be punished for it he deserves to be punished for it i have to say uh i think that i i agree perhaps with the fact that he felt frustrated by uh by french refereeing i don't agree with the fact that he chose that match to complain about it in because I actually feel that the refereeing favoured PSG in that uh, in that game against Bordeaux if anything I don't think they would have scored two goals had the referee not given them a very soft penalty uh, but I don't think that it, this will just b- blow over I think that Ibrahimovic will be given uh, a, a suspension and I think it will be a very hefty one as well mm. I think we could expect to see four or five games uh, that wouldn't surprise me at all uh, and it just remains to be seen how quickly uh, the, the the, the French League Association really want to, to try and make this decision and make it public and then try to draw a line under it. Uh, I, I'm not sure if we will know the extent of, uh, of Ibrahimovic's punishment by Thursday. Uh, the League's disciplinary committee will meet then uh, and, and decide either uh, whether to hand out a, a punishment there and then that evening uh, or whether they'll wait for another couple of weeks to give it greater thought. Uh, we'll have to wait and see, but it's 
it, it's something that I think people will be able to draw a line in that after the, the, the punishment has been doled out, but I, I think it would be wrong uh, if, if this just died away and, uh, and, and Ibrahimovic wasn't held responsible for, for his actions because, uh, you know, it was... Uh, uh, it, it was a very unsavoury outburst uh, and, and portrayed the club in a very uh, bad way and, and the player in a very bad way. His, his frustration after a match in a situation like that, in a you know, in, in such intense competition, is, is understandable. However, I just thought that the uh, the, the way that he worded his uh, his complaints was uh, was lamentable. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in, 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 as you mentioned, if, if this if this suspension comes down, if this ban is something like four. Four matches. That's a, that's a significant chunk of the rest of the season for PSG. And right now, they are two points back of Lyon in the standings. Marseille is not that far behind. Is is a is a Zatan less PSG team capable of 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 chasing down Lyon and winning this title? I think that PSG without Zlatan are capable of doing that. Yes. However, the problem is for PSG. It's not just in the league that they're trying to concentrate on at the moment. Uh, you know, they also have the Champions League, as you mentioned. They've also got the two domestic cups still because PSG have a, a semi-final in the Coupe de France, which might be played in the next couple of weeks or might even be played at the uh, at the end of April. There's a big debate going on surrounding that as well at the moment. And they also have the Coupe de la Ligue final early in April. So, you know, we can't forget that. And uh, it's not just going to be a ban for Ibrahimovic in the league. It would be a domestic ban. So that would be valid across all uh, cup competitions. And with PSG... Uh, playing games every every three to four days at the moment, and given the way that their current calendar is uh, is is packed, it's uh, you know it, it's going to be very difficult for PSG to cope without him uh, numerically more than uh, more than anything else. I think. Speaking of the Champions League, um, the, it, give me a framework and, and how is the the triumph over Chelsea being received um, in, in terms of PSG's continued attempt to you know go in and lift a European Cup and be champions of the continent rather than just consolidating their domestic success? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's a, it's a good question, particularly as you asked earlier, is, uh, is, is the Ibrahimovic rant something that might just blow over? I think the worst thing about the rant uh, you know, more, more than anything is the fact that it actually really tarnished uh, a, a good week for PSG. Yeah, the result was disappointing. However, you know, it did have to push Chelsea to, to extra time with 10 men. So it was understandable that it took a fair bit out of the players. I still think that they perhaps uh, could have done a bit more in the game against Bordeaux. It was a very mm-hmm. poor performance. But Ibrahimovic's rant afterwards ensured that absolutely everything positive that PSG had achieved earlier in the week in the Champions League without him on the pitch, uh, you know, went completely forgotten for the moment while everybody weighed in with their opinions on, uh, on his behavior. Uh, I think that it was a, it was a fantastic effort by, by PSG, heroic. It was, it was an absolute pleasure to be there, to watch it, to see the team performing uh, in the way that they did, pulling together with 10 men uh, and really showing a tremendous character to be able to, to knock Chelsea out. However, I, I I, I think that the the, the, the French press uh, treated it as, as as a heroic victory at the time, and then afterwards, uh, having had a bit more time to think about it, some people were coming out asking whether it really was a, a fantastic exploit or whether PSG should be aiming to knock uh, a team like Chelsea out by a clear margin and not just having to go through on away goals. But I, I think that's rather harsh. You know, I think it was a fantastic achievement for PSG. I think they can perhaps be disappointed they didn't beat Chelsea in the first leg, but I think they can be absolutely delighted with what they achieved in the second because it was a superb showing, showed brilliant character and really uh, showed people that this team can be more than just Latin Ibrahimovic. 
Certainly, and and, and with that uh, with that red card and, and the subsequent ban that's coming in the Champions League, how do you view their quarterfinal chances again, depending on the draw in a couple of days? Well, it depends on who they get. You know, we still have to wait to find out all the other teams that get through uh, to the quarterfinals. However, I think PSG can be confident now going into the next round because I think teams will look at what they've achieved against Chelsea and they will fear coming up against PSG. Uh, and I think that PSG don't really have to fear anybody in the, in the next round of that draw. I do think there are t- teams uh, in it that are still stronger than them that will provide them, uh, you know, perhaps with a bit too much of a challenge for this season. I think Bayern Munich certainly uh, will be a, a tall order for PSG. But, you know, they've earned the right now to look at themselves as uh, European giants and, and equals of the, of the likes of the Bayerns, the Real Madrids. Uh, the Barcelona's, you know, all those teams that are, are still left in the competition for the moment. So I, I think that it's uh, a PSG can look ahead to this draw and, and not have to worry about whoever they come up against. But I do think uh, if Ibrahimovic is missing for one of the two legs, as I assume that he will be, yeah. uh, I, I think that PSG can look back on the way they beat Barcelona earlier in the season without Ibrahimovic. Uh, and, and feel confident going into that game that they'll be able to put in a, a good performance and perhaps even beat whoever they draw, whether it's uh, whether it's at home or away. Uh, I do think it's uh, uh, quite telling that PSG's two best performances in Europe this season uh, have both come without Ibrahimovic on the pitch, though. It is that is certainly interesting. There's uh, uh, when you when you take a star out, you don't normally think the team will play better, but sometimes they rally a, a little bit more, uh, especially if you don't have that focal point. Um, in uh, in in demanding the ball, let me come to Monaco and their chances here in the Champions League. Obviously, they have a a strong lead. They they played uh, fantastic football against Arsenal at the Emirates to to stake themselves. They look to finish it out today. Is there any reason at all to believe that Monaco can't go ahead and see off Arsenal today? Uh, I don't think so. I think that Monaco are capable of uh, of seeing this out and getting into the quarterfinals. Uh, I think the big problem for Monaco is that they are likely to play extremely defensively in this game and just try to prevent Arsenal from scoring. But the thing uh, that, that, that worries me for Monaco going into this game is that if they, are to con- if they concede an early goal in that game, I think anything can happen. I don't think it's beyond Arsenal to score three times uh, in the space of 90 minutes. We saw it happen at the weekend in the, in the Premier League. Uh, and I think that for Monaco, it's absolutely imperative... Uh, what they do in the in, in the first half. If they can keep Arsenal scoreless, then I think the tie could be over by half-time. Monaco don't concede many goals at home. However, I think on a big night like this, it's going to be very interesting to see how the Monaco team reacts to the fact that they're going to be playing in front of a sold-out Stade Louis Deux because uh, I think as we've mentioned plenty of times when we've spoken in the past, this Monaco team doesn't have a great big fan base. So they're off, the players are often playing in front of a, uh, you know, a, a sparsely populated stadium. And tonight... Uh, it, it's going to be full. So I think uh, it, it could go one of two ways. But seeing so many home fans uh, there for such a special occasion could really motivate the Monaco players. However, it could also have an unsettling effect in the same way that it could have had an unsettling effect on Arsenal if the stadium was uh, you know, sort of half empty in the way that it usually is for, for Ligue 1 and, uh, and domestic cup matches. Uh, certainly, uh, that the, the difference in, in uh, atmosphere should be interesting to watch. Um, when you talk about about Monaco and where they are in, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know if you want to call it some uh, an experiment. It's certainly not that. It's 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 an attempt to be one of uh, France's best teams or or one of the Ligue 1's best teams. Obviously, not France. Um, and, and they've sold some players. They managed to stay competitive. They're they're looking at a quarterfinal berth in the Champions League. What's what's next? I mean, I'm just curious in terms of 
how much of invest how much investment we can expect whether or not Jardim is is just pulling rabbits out of his hat what exactly is going on here well i don't think we can expect too much investment i think monaco have made it clear now that they're taking a different tack with the project uh, it's it's one that i uh, i i've actually come uh, come around to in the last couple of months i think Jardim, uh whether or not it was the idea at the time has actually turned out to be a very shrewd appointment in that he is very good with working with with what he's got and not being able to add too much to it. You know, he's he's found a, a tactic that works with Monaco. Uh, he's found a way to make them very difficult to beat. And even if he acknowledges that he doesn't have uh, enough firepower within that squad, uh, you know, he makes the best with, uh, with with what he has at his disposal. Uh, and it's working for the moment. I don't think it's uh, uh, you know it's a long term. Uh, strategy. I, I think that Hardin will want to be able to invest in players, make Monaco uh, better going forward. However, it's not going to be uh, you know players of the same caliber as uh, as Falcao uh, and James Rodriguez is uh, arriving and and you know attempting to help Ligue 1, uh, help Monaco uh, challenge for the Ligue 1 title. I think that uh, it's going to be a more sort of five to ten year project with Monaco investing in some very talented young players from within Ligue 1, perhaps abroad as well. Uh, you know, uh, Hadim likes quite a number of players in, uh, in in the Portuguese league, so perhaps he's got his eye on a couple of players that he wants to bring in, uh, you know, over the summer from there. Uh, but I I do think that this team has plenty of potential. There's some very very good young talents there, young talents who are already starting to to play a key role in the first team. So it's going to be interesting to see who. Uh, Monaco decide that they can get rid of this summer. You've got the likes of Hal Moutinho there still, who was fantastic in that first leg against Arsenal, but really hasn't delivered uh, in the two seasons he's been playing for Monaco so far. I think Monaco will will much rather do everything that they can uh, to keep the likes of, of Jeffrey Condogbia and perhaps consider sacrificing a, a Moutinho. But uh, you know, I mentioned Falcao earlier, and that's uh, you know that is a situation that's going to get very interesting as well in the summer. Doesn't look like Falcao is going to have too many suitors for the moment. So I think Jorge Mendes is going to be uh, working extremely hard this summer to try and find him a new club. And uh, if if he can't, and if he has to stay at Monaco, assuming that Manchester United, by some miracle, don't take up the uh, the, the, the permanent option in his loan contract, uh, it's going to be very, very interesting to see how, how Falcao is received uh, back in Monaco if he has to start the season there. Uh, before I let you go, Jonathan, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about the, uh, the title race a little bit more and mention Lyon and Marseille playing to a goalless draw this weekend. A, a bit of controversy there. Certainly, um, you would expect some goals out of Marseille. It did not come. Lyon, top of the table. Exactly what, what happened, and what does that mean for the rest of the race here? Yeah, well, it was a, a nil-nil draw. Marseille finished the game with 10 men. However, Marseille did have the ball in the back of the net. It was another one of those uh, goals which prompts the, the debate for goal line technology. Uh, having looked at replays, uh, I do think that the ball crossed the line, so Marseille are right to feel uh, hard done by there. However, it is a very, very difficult call for a linesman or a referee to have made uh, in, in the time that they have in, you know, in, in real time. So I think it's understandable uh, that the goal didn't get given, even if, on reflection, it was the, it was the wrong decision. It was just, it, it was a very difficult situation for both the linesman and referee to find themselves in. In terms of the title race, it makes things very interesting. Leon have come out of a run of very uh, tricky away games, and they're still two points clear of PSG. They're four points clear of Marseille. Marseille, I, I would say, are just about hanging in there by the skin of their teeth in terms of the title race. I don't think that they're going to be able to make up the four points. Uh, to get ahead of Lyon before the end of the season. Now, I think PSG are going to be pushed hard enough to do that themselves, even though they're only two points behind uh, Lyon. So definitely 
uh, Uber Fournier's men holding all the cards at the moment. Deservedly so. They've been uh, very, very good uh, all throughout the season, uh, and they've coped with this difficult run of away fixtures recently uh, very well. Uh, you know, they're not feeling the absences of Milan Bisevac and, uh, and Johan Gorkov uh, through injury too much. Uh, so it's just going to be interesting now to see how they handle the pressure going into uh, their remaining nine games uh, as, as favourites each time because uh, as soon as they drop points and draw a game perhaps, you know, assuming that PSG have been able to keep up with them uh, and, and are still only two points behind them, then you know, there could be one more twist in this, uh, in this title race. But I do think that the result uh, between Marseille and Lyon means that it's, it can only really be a two-horse race between Lyon and PSG now. Uh, and so much will depend on that uh, suspension of Zlatan Ibrahimovic and whether PSG uh, can uh, motivate themselves to take all of these uh, these domestic games seriously enough. Remember, of course, we also have Marseille PSG coming up at the beginning of April. That could be uh, the title deciding game. Uh, the, a win would get Marseille back into the title race, but like I said earlier, I, I think they're too far behind now to realistically have any hope of overtaking Lyon. But for PSG, if they were to not win that game. Uh, away from home as well, it would be a huge, huge blow for their, for their title hopes. Jonathan Johnson covering French football for many an outlet. Follow him on Twitter, J-O-N underscore Le Gossip. Thank you very much for your time, Jonathan. It was good to have you back, and hopefully we can uh, do it again soon. Great. Thanks a lot, Jason. It's a pleasure, and uh, speak to you soon, hopefully. There you go. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll open up the phone lines. Get your uh, thoughts on anything happening around the world of soccer or football or whatever today. 347-756-6276. Be right back. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk with Jason Davis. Phone lines now open here at Soccer Morning, 347-756-6276. Perhaps you've seen this news floating around Twitter, hitting the wires and the like, that Gideon's LLM, yes, that Gideon's LLM, has been called up by the German U18 team for a couple of friendlies against France. Perhaps you're scared about this news if you're an American fan who has coveted the services of Gideon's LLM for the United States national team. But I'm going to tell you right now to calm down because I don't think it's a big deal. Bill in Brooklyn's on the line. What's up, Bill? Hey, Jason. How you doing? Hey, uh, you know, I, uh, I love the show, and I've been listening to this bet every day for the last two and a half years. But i got to take exception with the interview you did with... Uh, with rap from uh, Hudson River Blue uh, yesterday. Ooh. I mean, the idea to say that, like, you know, fans are feeling not welcome coming at the Red Bull Arena, I mean, that's that's insulting. Hey, and, hey, and, you, right. and you let them get away with it. You let them Whoa, that. whoa, I mean, whoa. That's just ridiculous. Whoa, Bill. Hold on a second. Okay, I, I'm not up there. I'm not talking to the fans. I'm not saying that, that Ralph has some sort of magical insight that nobody else has, but I let the man make his, his point, say his piece. If, he, if he's wrong then I'd love for Red Bull fans or anybody else who would know better to call me up and say so. That's fine. Well, I mean, the, the most insulting part about it is that, you know, he's trying to, he's trying to put this on the fans. I mean, listen, you know, uh, Red Bull has made hundreds of mistakes, and I'm not going to stand here and defend uh, the myriad 
of failures the team has made. But don't put it on, on us fans. I mean, listen, we have had more disappointments and failures and things to put up with over the last 20 years. We're the most loyal fans in the league because we're still here in spite of it. And to say yeah. that, uh, like I said, it's, it's just insulting. And, I mean, come on, give us a break. It's bad enough that we okay. have to deal uh, yeah. with this new team here. So you took this as an affront to Red Bull fans themselves rather than an, an, a condemnation of the organization. Oh, absolutely. They say he's not welcome coming to a, to, to a game. In, in, in what way is he not welcome? Okay, well, I, again, I don't know that that's necessarily him saying that the fans have made him feel unwelcome or anybody feel unwelcome. I don't know if he's talking from firsthand experience or secondhand or what. Maybe he's just talking about the, uh, I don't know, the uh, the corporate feeling. I don't, I, I don't know. I'm not going to put words into Raph's mouth, uh, Bill, but I understand your frustration. And again, now is the time. For the New York Red Bull organization, for Red Bull the company, for whoever's in charge and making these calls to figure out a way to double down on the fact that there is this other team across the river. Make yourself, brand yourself the original New York franchise. Why the hell wouldn't you? Do something that sets yourself up to say, look, you can, uh, you guys can come here, you can put 40000 in, in Yankee Stadium, that's all well and good, but we have a beautiful soccer-specific building that is damn loud when we fill it up. Come out and support the real New York team. Why not? Hey, we had, had 46000 the first day in Giant Stadium back in 96. We had oh, yeah, 60000 when Beckham came to town in all 2007, right. and uh, you know, these uh, numbers are not always sustainable, so um, you know, we'll let that be as it is. Okay, Phil. That, that's absolutely true, and I don't, I'm not getting too. That's why I'm not. I'm not getting too excited about the Yankee Stadium attendance, and I don't think anybody should get too excited about Orlando's attendance or anything like that. These games bring out big numbers. They're the first one. It's an event. Once it stops being an event and it's just a soccer game, then we'll find things out. Bill, thanks for the call, man. No problem. All right, there you go. Jonathan Tannenwald's on the line. What's up, Jonathan? Nothing. Nothing gets New Jerseyans more riled up. Rivalry-wise. Well, okay. Than the five boroughs of New York. Yes. I believe Bill was actually calling from one of the five boroughs, but I I think his point stands about, again, I called out Red Bull fans a bit for for whining a little bit yesterday, and I I didn't mean that to say I don't understand their feelings, and some of them has expressed to me that they think that that the Red Bulls being marginalized is a real concern, but I would also put that more squarely on the shoulders of Red Bull than I would on MLS. So, so would I. You know what? Go out there on May 10th and beat him. Yes, right. Do, make it count on the field, certainly. And we'll see what happens. What else, has, uh, what else is up, John? Because one of the things that I realized, I was up there Sunday, as, as you know, and you know, riding the subway to Yankee Stadium and, and seeing the, the crowds on the concourses and stuff like that, a lot of these people were soccer fans who had never been to an MLS game before. Now, if you want to yell at them about not having ever crossed the Hudson River and you want to yell at them from Columbus or Seattle or Portland or Salt Lake City, whatever, I can't stop you, but I disagree with it. Uh Um, The Major League Soccer fan base expanded on Sunday. Why is that a bad thing? No, I'm with you on that. And and I'll come back to something I just said to Bill. The, The event that was the debut of a major professional soccer team in the New York market for the Red Bulls slash Metro Stars was in 1996. That's a long time ago now. There is no, you can call every other, you can call these other games events if you want, the arrival of Henri, some of these friendlies, et cetera, et cetera. But nothing has that same cachet as the first time. 
And and that's why, again, the, the number's impressive, 43,507, whatever it was. It's not going to hold there. And even if the, the but even if New York FC comes down, New York City FC comes down to, to 15 or 18, that's still good. That's still impressive. I think that Red Bull fans, you know, I, I, John, you, what you're saying is since 1996, we've added enough soccer fans in this country, whether they have ever been to an MLS game or not, that for them, an event was worth going out to. We'll find out if soccer is worth going out to. Awful lot of those people ran the NYCFC stores in the Yankee Stadium dry. Okay. And, and, and I think a lot of them have made it clear we weren't going to Giant Stadium. We weren't going to Red Bull Arena because we live in Long Island or we live in Westchester County or way out in Brooklyn or whatever it may be. But we'll get on the subway and go to Yankee Stadium. That's the single. They have David Villa and they have that subway station. Those are the two biggest assets they have. And I'll tell you again, and, and I am not, I'm not a New Yorker. I've not, never spent a significant amount of time in New York, but I've talked to enough people from the area, from Jersey, from, from upstate, uh, that, that go into the city. When you are focused on the five boroughs and, and really four, you are focused on those boroughs and, and Jersey is psychologically a million miles away. And, and if people don't understand this, especially people out west, John, have you ever gone out west and tried to explain to somebody how something that's 10 miles away can feel like it's 50 miles away? There's, there's no, comparison at all there's, there's just it, it takes you two hours right. to go from right. the upper west side of manhattan to red bull arena uh, yeah uh, there, there's no other place in the country i mean in the other i mean la i've heard less complaint out of la than i have out of the rest of the west coast because they understand how that 10 miles in two hours is not so easy right but it it's it it's it is a different market it is a market unlike any other in the country, and for better or worse, it's a market that feeds off having multiple teams within it going against each other. And that's something that's really unique among all the big cities in the country. I've got to run, but I've said my piece. There goes Jonathan Tannewald from Philly.com. Follow him on Twitter at The Goalkeeper. uh, Trevor Hayward jumping in with something. He said, I think people underestimate that there are a thousand events you can attend on a Saturday night in New York City, and that's a point to be made as well. Washington is back on the line. Hey, what's up, Jason? Are, are How's we, it going? Are, are we going to continue this Jonathan? talk? <laughs> We're going to continue. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm all right. <laughs> Jonathan hit the nail on the head when he said, um, "You know, that there were people there." I'm, I'm one of them. I had never attended an MLS game before in my life, and the reason I didn't, and the re- I, I did that on purpose because it was my way of protesting, of, of, of bringing, I said, bring a club to New York City. It was my way of doing that. And I will not go to Jersey. I will not go to West. I will not go anywhere else. Bring a club to New York City, and I'll go there because that's my home. And that's the reason why I went, and that's the reason why the majority went on people who had never been. He hit the nail right on the head. And he's right. Going to her, and, and I have nothing against the Red Bull. I have nothing against them at all. But it's not my home. Harrison, New Jersey is not my home. It's New Jersey. It's not my home. I wanted a team at home. And this is my team. And I, as long as they stay inside New York City, they will forever be my team. Okay. And that's the reason why I went. Mm-hmm. And that's the reason why I think a lot, because there were a lot of us over there. And that's the reason why a lot of us went. And I'm, I'm, I have friends and I have family, and all of us did the same thing. We'd never go to New Jersey. We'd never go you know, elsewhere because we wanted a team in the five boroughs. And that's the reason why we were there. Okay. That's, that's, that's it. He hit the nail on the head. All right, fair I enough. couldn't have said it better myself. Take yeah, care, man. There goes Washington calling from New York. And again, you know, we're getting into some of this weird New York Jersey mentality thing. Uh, for anybody who's not 
in that area, hasn't is not from that area, has not spent time in that area. I think so. A lot of this stuff can be very, very foreign. But I'll tell you just from my personal experience. Okay, I am uh, first of all as a military brat, moved around a lot as a kid. But ultimately, I ended up in Northern Virginia, which is you know obviously western suburbs of Washington D.C. I've been here for I don't know fifteen twenty no twenty years now, but in this area roughly twenty years with a couple of breaks in between. I don't go to Maryland. I'm nothing against Maryland, but I don't go to Maryland. And I'm not sure I would go to Maryland unless there was a really, really good reason. And I'll tell you what, where I am right now is not that far from Maryland. I could probably be there in half an hour. And certain events that happen in Maryland may intrigue me. But again, it's it's this mental block. It's a it's a psychological thing. And I think this is true for a lot of a lot of people who live in different uh, metropolitan areas. And I think this is something, look, you can't really consider this when you're building a stadium. You can't really think about it too much, especially for the Red Bulls, who, again, started life in, New York, in, in Giant Stadium because that's what was available to them in 1996 when there was no chance of building a stadium for themselves. That was, that was there. That's what could house the co- hopefully 15,000, 20,000 people that they were able to get. And they certainly didn't draw that uh, at Giant Stadium on a regular basis. So when they decided to build in Harrison, that's because it was available. That's what that, that that's where they could go. It's not maybe not where they wanted to go. I don't know what kind of effort. I don't really remember the whole stadium discussion. I don't remember what kind of effort went into exploring New York proper. I doubt a lot. Because guess what? It's really really hard. And we're going to find out if New York City FC can ever jump that hurdle. And whether or not Washington is going to be dropping that team in five years because, hey, they moved to Westchester because that's the only place they could build a stadium. I I think that this is going to play out. And as I've said on many occasions, this is Don Garber's legacy right here. Not expansion, not Minnesota, not Sacramento, not Miami, not Atlanta, not Orlando. This, New York City FC. Is Don Garber's legacy. This doesn't work. If they're either kicked out of Yankee Stadium, which I, who knows how that could possibly happen, but it could, especially if the Yankees pull out because they can't get their deal, a stadium deal done, and they end up having to go play temporarily at Red Bull Arena in a ground share or build something in Westchester or look on Long Island. That's not good enough. That's not why you forced an expansion team into New York City. Vamos DCU on Twitter, is the football team in Washington a good reason to go to Landover, Maryland? No, it is not, because I am not a fan of that particular NFL franchise. <laughs> I, and that is a horrible experience. Going to Landover, to FedEx Field, for an NFL game is a terrible, terrible experience. I do not wish it on anybody. 469, you're on the air. Hey, this is Noe from Dallas. What's going on in Dallas, man? Hey, uh, kind of feel... Uh, the same with New Yorkers. When FC Dallas moved to Frisco, which is an hour away, yeah, outside of the Dallas County, they lost a lot of fans. They lost a lot of fans because they just they they were far away. And now, me personally, I live two hours from Frisco. I still go to FC Dallas games, but not as much mm-hmm. when I lived in Dallas. Mm-hmm. And they're getting a lot of more fans back because the team has come better for a while. They were the, the stadium was empty. So I kind of feel the whole, if the team moves far away from the main city, 
they will lose fans. So I, I kind of understand the New Yorkers. Another thing, too, they were saying how uh, New Yorkers don't go to New Jersey. Well, how do Giants and Jets fans go to well, look, as, Stadium? As with everything else, the NFL is an exception. Now, I'm making fun of the, of the Washington football team and how I don't go to Maryland, but I know I certainly know a lot of Virginians who care about that team who do go to Maryland for those games, despite the fact that it's not far away, but it's not it, it's in Maryland and it's it's not a fun trip and it's not a fun experience once you get there because you, they charge you fifty dollars for parking. So I, I I think that the NFL will always be an exception. We should just push that to the side. Yeah, and like I said here in Frisco, oh, it was a horrible idea moving it to Frisco. Well, but again, I, I think what we've got here is horrible driving up there. Yeah, like I only go maybe three or four times. Where before I used to go all the time, and you know it's it's tough for us fans to live outside of inside the Dallas Fort Worth area to drive well, up to Frisco. This is, I understand the New Yorker fans going not wanting to go to New Jersey. Well, hey, look, it's and distance wise, it's not even close to what you have to 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 do to get to Frisco. It's not. It, it's just a matter of of whether or not the traffic is bad or the public transportation is not uh, is not good enough. There are a lot of reasons for it. And again, it's a psychological thing as well. But uh, I think what what you're pointing to here is this is why Garver has been adamant about urban stadiums. This is why he has been right. adamant that, that expansion teams put their stadiums in the city because regardless of whether or not that's, you know, a, a – the right place for the fan base or the right place for the team from a, from a financial standpoint, you're, you're not, you're not isolating the team the way that FC Dallas is currently isolated, the way that the Chicago Fire are currently isolated, the way that the Colorado Rapids are currently isolated. And I think that those teams, while they made what they thought was the best decision at the time, let's just get a stadium. We can't play in these football venues anymore. It relegates them to secondary status in their own market for the next 30 years because they're not going to build a stadium downtown in, in, in Denver or in Chicago or in Dallas because there already, there already is a soccer stadium. Right? Why, why would you go build something and pay a lot more money? And, and so it's, it's interesting to see that sort of, you know, while we go, we go from MLS 1.0 to 2.0 to 3.0 perhaps, those teams are sort of in MLS 2.5 territory. Because they're never going to be as important to those cities, and their fans are are, are going to be um, less likely to make that trek because of where they are. Just like you. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense when when guys looked up there, they were trying to draw more of the. Well, I mean, but again, they may not. They may have felt they didn't have a choice. Here's an opportunity. Frisco's offering us tax breaks and land and all of these things. Dallas isn't going to do that, and it's going to be tough to build in Dallas anyway. I don't know if that's true or not, but I'm just laying out the possibility. So, what did the Hunts? Yeah, that, what did the Hunts do? Want the Cowboys? <laughs> right, the, right, so, right. There, yeah, they had to go to Arlington, whatever. So, the what yeah. do the what do the Hunts do? The Hunts say, of course, we're going to take this deal. We want our own stadium. We're not going to play in high school buildings and, and and the Cotton Bowl anymore. We're going to go build a proper soccer venue, and they did that. And first of all, put a damn roof on that place because it's hot. Yes, and second of yes, all, I don't go to summer games, it's so, so yeah. far it's so far out there. And like I said, you these teams are uh, uh, you know ten years ago were in a very difficult position. Stay in bad venues where you don't control the revenue, where it's an ill fitting situation, where it makes the sport look terrible, or build a stadium far enough away that it's it's going to be a problem drawing people out there. 
So I don't know. Let's get yeah. this good. So I just want to say I understand New Yorkers is not going to New Jersey for the travel yeah. distance. We we yeah. got to deal that here too. In I, Dallas I appreciate the call, man. Thanks a lot for listening in Dallas. I'm going to move on. This is related. Certainly, it's been announced that the Seattle Sounders have extended their lease with CenturyLink Field through 2028. That is a long time from now. That is so far from now that I I can't even fathom what my life will be in 2028. And there's a reason for this. Because it's in the middle of Seattle. Because it's in the right place. Because they don't want to have to go and try to figure out where the hell they're going to build a stadium that can help them keep that momentum. And they certainly aren't going to be able to build a stadium to hold 35, 45, 55,000 people anytime soon. It gives them the opportunity to grow further into CenturyLink where one day we're talking about the Seattle Sounders selling that place out week to week. Now, the turf sucks. It sucks. And it's terrible, and I don't like it, and I hate watching games in Seattle because the ball is going like this the entire time. But I get why they made this decision. They really don't have another choice. David, you're on the air. What's up? Jason, uh, if New Jersey and New York people are going to be sniping at each other every day because of this new club, then that's great because I love listening to that. <laughs> the only thing that I get a value out of that whole discussion. I was just going to ask the question, and I'm sure I'm not the only one. Is that really a 70-yard wide pitch? Because the penalty area is 44 yards wide, meaning that on either side between the edge of the penalty area and the touchline, uh, is on the sideline is 13 yards, and man, it does not look like 13 yards on television. It looks like it's maybe 10. It's it's uh, uh, come on, David. Daniel, it, it, David, excuse me. In that in that margin for error viewing on television, you can't know. I'm not saying it's definitely 13 yards because I haven't gone out there and walked it. But uh, yeah, let's just assume it's 70 yards because I, I think well, the, the alternative uh, is I, the alternative is troubling, David. Yeah, well, I say that because. It's like an AYSO game at times. There is no room for those players. And I saw several times, I'm sure it's going to take a time for, especially New York FC, of course, to get used to it. But I saw guys making passes where, I mean, it's if they thought they had another five yards. Uh, and, yeah. and it just looked amateurish okay. at it's times. Good, it's going to take I mean, some getting used to it. Like it was in good shape, I, I will say that. The interesting thing is that I recorded both the Houston game and this one, and we just watched them yesterday. I watched the New York City game first and then watched the Houston game, which is supposedly a 70-yard field, and that looks like it's 70 yards. It looks actually fairly narrow, too, but it, I, mean, I, I have a well, hard time okay. believing that that is a 70-yard pitch. Consider. Okay, thanks for the call, David. $65 would obviously be uh, uh, with outside the laws of the game, and that would be bad, and we don't want that. I will say that the the visual cues you're getting from the stadium might have impact whether or not it, it is it looks 70 yards, looks as wide as Houston's field, which, again, Houston listed at 70 yards in the in the documentation I've seen. Daniel in Atlanta is on the air. What's up, Daniel? Hey, good morning, Jason. Good morning. What's going on? Hey, uh, I just wanted to change this subject real quick, if you don't mind. Okay, good, good, because we're going to go back to New York in just a second, I'm sure, because Mark Fishkin's with us as well. But go ahead, Daniel. Uh, yeah, I was just... I just wanted to say, with uh, Minnesota being rumored to come into MLS, what were your impressions on speaking with the NASL president a while ago? Because I kind of forgot. And why 
what what do you think he'll say? What do you think he'll do about losing a team from the second division, quote unquote? Um, hey, look, this is going to be, this is going to happen. It's happened already for him. It's going to happen continually. Thanks for the call, Daniel. Look, they're going to lose Atlanta. I don't know how the Silverbacks can possibly survive, although I don't know that they're exactly dead yet. And that's still a couple years away for Atlanta to get into the league. They're obviously going to lose Minnesota United if this all comes to pass. Um, I, 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 I don't know. I mean, Peterson seemed to play it off. Hey, we'll go find other markets. That's all well and good, but there are only so many markets that fit that that NASL profile, there are only so many markets that MLS isn't going to want to exploit. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, there's an op-ed here over at Empire of Soccer that says NASL should embrace and exploit Minnesota United's MLS move. I haven't read it yet, but it sounds like a fascinating idea. Mark, what's going on? You read EmpireofSoccer.com? I know, that, right? I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good. <laughs> what else? Uh, what's going on? Uh, Mark. Uh, I'm glad to provide a laugh. Um, listen, it, it obviously, in in relation to the NYC soccer wars, um, you have to hand it to the blue team, despite all of the Michigas surrounding the launch and the uh, Lampard issues. Uh, they seem to have locked into an audience that had not really been turned on to MLS. And Obviously, you know where I stand on the issue of where my loyalties lie, but mm-hmm. you have to you have to give them kudos for um, everything that they were able to accomplish for one afternoon. Mm-hmm. You just have to wonder. <laughs> and right right when this uh, when that their club was announced, you and I had almost a constant drumbeat, which is where will they play? Right. And if the team is unable to solve for soccer-specific stadium within the city limits, um, you wonder how far east or how far north this fandom will go if the club is uh, outside a convenient subway. Yeah, look, and, and, and Mark, John, Jonathan Tannewald said, he, you know, when he was there, he watched uh, people clear out the team stores. They were all excited. Again, 43,000 is a lot of people, but and, and you, you kind of alluded to it there. For one day, and I've already reiterated this point, for one day they did a fantastic job and they got a lot of people out. Uh, that that doesn't mean that they're not going to have some popularity, but it also means we should wait before we judge just how popular they are. Well, sure, and uh, Entre New and your listeners, uh, we know that a lot of those tickets were, uh, were not necessarily paid for, not that that's a bad thing. <laughs> wait, yeah, do free, you have... Free sampling hold on, free, free, do, you, do you have proof of this? Because I got in trouble... Or some some people have gotten in trouble with Orlando for implying that they did the same thing, and I don't want I don't want people from NYCFC yelling at me because I got it wrong that they papered the room. Let them yell at me. Okay, uh, I have uh, <laughs> very very good evidence that lots and lots of free tickets were distributed, and that's not a bad thing for day one of a franchise. And it, the day could not have gone. Any better from them, from Juan Agudelo's uh, unbelievable misses to uh, two very well taken goals. Um, it was really a great day, and um, I would only hope, of course, that the New York-based media understands that there's actually a game going on this uh, this Sunday. They, they probably won't, because mm-hmm. they haven't for most of the last 20 years uh, paid attention to the ugly, filthy New Jersey team. 
that plays uh, on the you know recaptured industrial well, brownfield. Look again, I, and I know this is difficult for Red Bull fans to swallow, and I understand why. And you know, um, y- you know, the pain runs deep, but beat them on the field, and I imagine that that somebody might pay attention. Um, I'm sorry, but I have to call bullshit on that. <laughs> okay, because I, I don't think that anyone will pay attention. I think the two games that will will draw a lot of attention this year at Red Bull Arena will be the two times that NYC comes. Listen, I, I grew up on the. Uh, on the more popular side of the river, I now live on the on the less popular side of the river. Uh, the New Jersey Nets never got any ink in New York. The New Jersey Devils never got any ink in New York. And this team um, that I've supported for 20 years seemingly is incapable of doing the same. Yeah. So it's uh, I understand why a lot of Red Bull fans are undone um, by the lavish fawning over this experience last week. Um, I would only hope that uh, fans come out to Harrison on Sunday, and not just DC fans, but I would hope that uh, the Red Bull fans show up in large numbers and, and illustrate uh, what real support looks like Mark, uh, for a team that's been around a long time. Yeah, i got to get to another caller, but maybe the, maybe the key here is partnering with a baseball team. Maybe the Red Bulls could par- – oh, no, it's the Mets. Never mind. Have a wonderful day, Jason. <laughs> there goes Mark Fishkin. 619, you're on the air. Who's this? <laughs> yeah, my name is Alex from San Diego. What's going on, man? Yeah, I just want to talk about uh, expansion MLS in San Diego. Why is, is there nobody talking about it? Well, okay, do you have a, do, do, is there is there a rich guy with a lot of money or a, rich, a group of rich guys with a lot of money willing to put it up? I mean, obviously not, but I just don't see why nobody wants to invest here in San Diego fearing... Uh, they, they can't compete against Cholos. Yeah, well, I mean, is that is that something that you think? Because I, I've heard dissenting opinions on this. I, I've got people telling me, okay, uh, San Diego is Cholos country, and then i got some people telling me, no, that's a bunch of crap. If an MLS team came here, we would go and see it. Yes, I, I go to the Cholo games um, regularly, but if I have to choose between going to Cholo games and going to San Diego, you know, I'd rather support my, my team here in San Diego. Okay. So I... Well, I you know the other the potential here. Okay, and I think there is potential. We always hear about the t- TV ratings in San Diego, but I think part of your problem is the same problem that imp- impacts the way people view Miami as a potential market. Your weather is too damn nice. You got other stuff to do, man. The beach is right. Why would you even like? Why would you take a Saturday and spend you know three hours at a soccer match when you could be doing all this other stuff? Is there any way they could just bring a team over here to San Diego? <laughs> maybe that maybe you should in fact i may have even pitched that idea a long long time ago hey look i would love to see a team in san diego uh clearly you know clearly cholos has done some good work but i can't imagine that if you put an mls team there people wouldn't pay attention it's just whether or not it would be ultimately as successful as some of these other cities man i, I appreciate the phone call thanks a lot oh, just one, one more thing um sure i just want to mention that the, the new uh tv schedule in mls like i really know okay there's a game on friday national TV, then on Sunday, and that way like, it, it makes more sense for people to be able to know when there's a game available. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, absolutely, 100%. Thanks, all. Thanks for the call, man. I appreciate right. it. Thank you. There you go. Uh, checking in from uh, San Diego, and uh, San Diego doesn't get any love as a potential MLS market. Again, I think that's a Cholos factor. I think it's, uh, look, San Diego, likelihood San Diego builds a stadium for an MLS team, very, very low considering all of the back and forth with the Chargers and the Padres over the last couple of years. Uh, I, that seems unlikely, and uh, they uh, they eventually got that that 
Padre Stadium done, but can, can you, they're going to drop $100 million, $150 million or give tax breaks or, or spend money on resource, uh, money and resources on infrastructure to give an MLS team a, a stadium? I don't know where that goes. Um, probably unlikely. All right. Thanks a lot to uh, our guests today, Christian Hanez and Jonathan Johnson. Good chats there with those guys. Make sure you go to 3 0 uh, fc.com to buy a t-shirt and backhill.com slash store to buy a mug. Very cool stuff. Make sure you're checking out draft11.com to play a fantasy soccer over there. It's good stuff. Single match day games up against, uh, uh you play against 10 people. You win cash. Can't really beat that. Uh, thanks to the callers as well. I am, I apologize for taking a shot at Mark Fishkin's baseball team. That was rude of me, but it made Trevor Hayward very, very happy because he hates the Mets. It's a whole thing. All right. We'll be back tomorrow. Big Wednesday edition of the show. Enjoy your Champions League. Talk to you then. Bye.